everyone, and uh, welcome to another edition of the Coltec Austin Tech Leaders podcast. Today, we've got the great pleasure of being joined by Wes Jackson, who's the CTO of FreeWire Systems. FreeWire Systems is a trusted partner for government agencies and military organizations looking to modernize with innovative and efficient technology solutions. Wes has been within the Austin tech market for some time now. Endearingly, I've been referred to by some colleagues as the professor. So um, we're really looking forward to diving into uh, Wes's experiences and the predictions for the future of the tech market. So that's a brief introduction from me, Wes, but it's always best to hear it from you. Give us a little bit more of your background and you know, your history. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm Wes Jackson. Thanks for having me on the show today here in Austin, Texas, where I've lived for about the last 30 or 32 years. I came here to go to school and met my wife and st- settled down and have stayed here ever since. Uh, <laughs> I've been in the technology industry really for most of my or all of my adult career since after college. I worked at Dell for about 13 years prior to joining 3Wire and served a lot of different segments of industry there. And at 3Wire, I've been here for going on five years now. Most recent title is the CTO. And that function I'm serving to help our sales teams better articulate our our message, our technical message to customers, and then also set us up for success for what are we going to be needing to present to customers as far as solutions in the next three to five years, just to make sure that we're building capability ahead of that roadmap. And obviously, the, the, the work that you guys do at FreeWire, working within the government and implementing change there is a real, real interesting subject to me. You know, before we moved out to Austin as a business, historically, we've done a lot of work with central government in the UK and having to implement technology into what can often be quite legacy ways of working, ways of thinking as well, and having to show new digital ways of working and moving forward can always be a challenge. Working with with Gov and and military, how have you seen the changes and the way that they're accepting the change within the government? Certainly, certainly. One of the interesting aspects of government customers is that they're all really big. There's not really any such thing as a small federal agency. Even what's considered a small federal agency is usually a large organization by any other standard. And they will have been big for a really long time. If you think about the fact that we often talk about legacy applications or legacy infrastructure in a government context, and that's because they were big enough to need that thing that at the time was cutting edge, yeah. you know, 20 or 30 years ago, and is now not. And it's pretty difficult and expensive to transition off of older ways of doing business, older methodologies and older technologies. But that's where 3 comes in and some of our partners to try to help march along that, that trajectory. And it's really phenomenal how far a lot of agencies have come just in the last you know, five to 10 years, where you know industry is generally, even if you talk to government leaders, they will tell you that you know, Silicon Valley is is blazing a trail and they're going to be the leaders in, in whatever technology it is. But government has done a better job in the last few years of trying to embrace that and trying to see about what would it take for government to adopt change at a rate that remains relevant. And so, you know, if you think back to the 40s and 50s, when a lot of the acquisition regulations were invented, and you know, you needed to spend a lot of time and process to avoid fraud, waste and abuse. And you were going to be buying things like tanks and helicopters and stuff like that. Well, you can have a long procurement cycle in that, but right, you know, today in in Silicon Valley, an 18 month procurement cycle might mean that whatever it was you were going to buy is now obsolete and you should be on to the next thing. And so there are organizations that are actually set up in Austin and in Silicon Valley 
to sit side by side with tech innovators so that the government doesn't have to look and find that they've been you know, sort of left in the dust technologically. And for that reason, there's a tremendous amount of innovation going on in government right now. It's amazing to see the shift in our government agencies. You know, as I mentioned in the UK, where I've got my experience initially, obviously before I moved out to Austin, but to see the uptake on new technology within the government, which is enabling them obviously to reduce spend, create ROI elsewhere within the business, being able to put that back into the government and be able to help, you know, the public. It's really good to see. With that, you know, seeing the changes, Obviously, you mentioned earlier, you've been in Austin for 30 odd years now uh, since school and, you, you know, you've seen how the city's changed and the tech market's changed in that time. What do you think has been the biggest catalyst for change within Austin, within the tech market? Well, so I guess the tech market in general, if I start there, maybe that's a pretty big place to start. But, yeah. You know, technology innovation really is a response to either one of two major things. You either have response to a market need that somebody senses and goes after or you have an engineer in their garage that's just got a great idea that, well, somebody will need this someday. And you need both of those things. Steve Jobs was famous for saying that the customer doesn't know what they want until they see it. And so they invented the iPhone in a silo and trotted it out at a show and everybody loved it. But they had done, you know, it wasn't like they didn't talk to any customers, but they didn't just go and conduct surveys. But on the other side of it, you've got people doing market research and finding, oh my gosh, there's really an unmet need in XYZ area. You think of Uber and Lyft, there was an Austin-based company called Hayride in, I don't know what year is this, 2021? I get my years mixed up because we kind of missed a year last year. But anyway, back six or seven years ago, Hayride existed, and they got acquired by Lyft, I believe it was. But the guy that founded it, he was going from concert venue to concert venue at an event in Austin and just needed a ride. And Austin has never been really a place like in New York where you can just walk outside and raise a hand and yell, a car will pick you up. You've got to wait and all that. And so he saw an Audi driving by and he thought, well, why can't I just drive with that guy? And so it was a felt need that he had, right? So just I use that as an example to say, okay, sometimes you see a market need and you go after it. And sometimes you just have an idea for something that would work. But people innovate in in a lot of different ways. Why that's happening in Austin is a little bit the reason why it was happening so much in Silicon Valley. You've just got this synergy of, you know, I heard a person say recently that you know, before the pandemic, you could go into any coffee shop in Silicon Valley and throw a rock and you would hit a great engineer and you could just hire that person and they could build your product for you. That's becoming the case more and more in Austin. Texas is a very business friendly state. It's, you know, if you're a business owner and you want to move to a state with low taxes and low regulation and you know that there's not a lot of ambiguity in terms of how fast you can go to build your enterprise, Texas is a great place to do that. And a lot of business leaders that are established, you know, good entrepreneurs are moving to Texas to start their businesses. And they want to move to a place where there's already a lot of technical talent. And Austin's one of those spots. Oracle just recently moved their headquarters here. They built a giant campus and they've revitalized an entire area near the river. Tesla just announced this week that they're moving their headquarters to Austin. And so the more that happens, the more that becomes a draw for other tech leaders to come do the same thing, just be around that talent pool. Yeah, 100%. And obviously with that as well, like you mentioned, obviously being in a coffee shop and being able to bump into great engineers wherever you go, that also breeds sort of growth within the sector because there's lots of people sharing ideas, there's lots of talent in the area. And then obviously once that spawns off other smaller startups from maybe other businesses that have grown and and expanded, then, you know, the engineers from there go and start their own things because they've had a different idea. And success breeds success in, in that sense. And then the growth will obviously breed growth as well. With that in mind and the changes in the market, 
and how things are growing and you know text an ever moving thing and it's going to be expanding you know and changing constantly if we're sitting here in three to five years times you mentioned you make plans for government and what's going to happen in three to five years if we're sitting here in five years having this conversation what piece of tech or way of working or you know what is going to make the biggest impact over the next five years do you think one of the biggest things that's going to make an impact i know everybody that you asked that question to says the same thing but ai and ml yeah. is most likely going to be the biggest change maker in a place like austin where you've got that talent pool it kind of feeds back into the first thing i was saying where you know people find a need and or, or figure something out that could work being around a lot of smart technical people sort of opens your mind to oh my gosh that's a problem i didn't know i had or a way of solving it i didn't know was possible well now let me go start this project and was just visiting with some government customers a few weeks ago who are responsible for fraud detection within their organization. They're using AI to do that. They have a tremendous team. They've got a big team of data scientists. They've got a big team of AI and ML developers. But the more government organizations can use automation, and we like to call it intelligent automation. So, you know, we've been doing automation forever. There's robotic process automation now that's really automation with more capability around it. And, you got machine learning, automated artificial intelligence, all of that around just automating the citizen experience. You know, as taxpayers and as citizens who are the beneficiaries of whatever government agency it is, every time you interact with that agency, you know, there's the classic picture everybody has in their mind of sitting in line half the day at the DMV, you know, waiting on getting a driving license or something like that. Well, that's a bad experience. And it's not the kind of experience people grow to expect. You pick up your phone now and you expect to tap a couple of icons and it does something amazing for you within a couple of seconds. I was reading recently that even the speed that an app loads on your phone is important. You know, from the time the user taps the button to the time it's given them some sort of result has to be so fast that if it doesn't deliver that result within, I think it's four and a half seconds, then they tend to just close the app and conclude it's not working. <laughs> it used to be back in the day when I was doing development in the late 90s for a customer, that time was 14 seconds. If, you're, if yeah. your web page loaded in 14 seconds, if you took 14 seconds today, it'd be forever. So anyway, bring that back to your question. So the citizen experience has an ever increasingly high expectation. Every citizen has a smartphone just about, and they all expect their government to be at least as good as all of these small companies that have got an app on their phone. And so the best way for government to do that is to automate what's automatable so that you can focus resources and budget on what you can't automate. There's plenty of things that are not possible to automate you wouldn't want to, but you at least should be streamlining the things that can be streamlined so that you can spend limited resources on what really needs that human touch. Do you think with that in mind, the need to be much more user friendly? So one of the slogans in UK government, when we was working extensively with the government digital service, was about putting the user first. Every project that would come out would enhance user experience in some way. So like you mentioned, waiting at the DMV for your driver's license, you can now apply for that online, a couple of click of a button, we, we go into the post office to update your passport. That can all be done now on your phone. You've got an app that you can take the picture for you and so on and so forth. So everything that you try to do makes it easier for the user, which makes the uptake much better. But do you see a need for government to accelerate that because of how quick these public companies or private companies, should I say, are setting up and innovating so quickly that the public sector and government has to try and keep up with that. Are you seeing that as a big challenge because of the speed at which you're going to have to innovate compared to where other businesses are? Absolutely. The challenge expresses itself in a way that's different from what it is in the private sector. You know, if you and I went off to start a, another 
ride hailing business, it would need to be as good as Uber and Lyft if it was going to succeed at all, right? You know, so you've got competition and you got a very real existential threat to a business. If you fail to compete, then you just simply go away. In government, there's not the competition in the same sort of sense, right? It's not like you can just go next door to the better yeah. DMV and get your driving license. You've got to follow whatever legal process that there is. But government leaders do have competition, you know, in, in elected leader societies and democratic societies. If, if you're in charge of some area and it's not meeting citizen expectations, you may find yourself not in charge of that any longer. <laughs> and, you know, for big countries, this isn't as big of a deal, but for smaller countries, don't have the budget to be wasting money, you could find yourself economically or even militarily under threat because you just failed to manage your citizen expectations very well. That's a real thing. And you see that all over the world. Not to say that automation could have helped a lot of conflicts, but but you never know, right? Just think of, you know, some small country that just simply doesn't manage its looks well and doesn't manage to modernize, right? You know, what might that mean? It's like here in the US, obviously you haven't got that issue nor in the UK, but you know, certainly for your members of parliament or for your elected officials, they will definitely hear from, from users. Here in Austin, we have, in Texas, there are, I believe it's three toll road operators. And so when you pass through the toll, most places you don't stop and give money to the machine anymore. You just drive through and it takes a picture if you don't have a tag, it's got a little RFID tag. But one of the three operators had a contract with the private company and it was such a bad experience that they finally ended the contract but what was happening there was that the toll road operators are private companies, but they're kind of under the auspices of a government. Yeah. And you had the ability to switch toll tags to one of the other operators if you wanted to. And the bad operator was just losing customers. People were moving over. So when people can move, they will. A very interesting anecdote, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, I was at a talk given by their CIO two years ago, and they were talking about a modernization initiative that they had. Farmers in the U.S. have to submit data on how productive their farm is and what sorts of products they're using on their farm and things like that. And when that program first started, everything was printed out. So you would type up your thing on your typewriter and you would drive it to the county office and they would hand enter it into whatever system. That was still the system basically in place until maybe five or six years ago. And the farmers all started bringing these printouts that were all look the same to the county offices. And people finally started noticing and asked, well, wait a minute, why do they all look the same? And why are they printed out? Why do they look so nice? We're hand entering these back into our system. Well, it turned out the farmers had automated years ago. And <laughs> the government hadn't kept up. And so they went and got with the farmers and figured out what they were using. Now they all use the same system. You don't have to drive to the county office anymore. You just transmit it just like you would expect, right? It's that sort of expectation that citizens have. And if you know if a farmer can transmit their information or if you and I can get our driver's license, everything should be that streamlined, at least at a baseline. Well, that, that's what I was getting at with a question, because obviously there's legalities around the things you have to use government for certain things. But the expectation from the user of they're getting this service here, although we have to use you, I don't want it to be a necessary evil. And, you know, my app takes ages to load up or, you know, I can't do, you know, a simple transaction. I've got to drive here rather than make it a necessary evil, make it a bit more of a pleasurable experience. And I'm just wondering, and we've, we've proven that the, the speed of innovation in the private sector has had to increase the, the speed of innovation within the public sector. In terms of these these programs that you're setting up, historically, all the, all the work that you've done, how do you best set up your programs for success? We definitely want to think about what are the customers really going to be using. In the government sector, buying is a little slow. Uh, there's usually a one to three year buying cycle. 
So it's not as if a government customer is going to run down to Fry's Electronics and just buy which They might if they just need a couple of things, but usually they're thinking really long-term, large solutions and that type of thing. And so you've really got to be thinking multiple years ahead and figuring out, okay, what am I going to be able to get approved for use in this government entity? That's another issue we didn't talk about before, but just because something is hot in Silicon Valley doesn't mean it'll be approved for yeah. use on the government network. You know, it may be... Yeah little with spyware or whatever. So you can think of a couple of social media apps that have probably come to mind in the last couple of years that, that had that issue. So, but you need to be thinking about, okay, if there's this great technology, how can I be getting that startup? So I like, we work with a few startup companies that come to us from time to time and say, hey, we think we have a great solution for the government. Okay, well, usually they're not quite ready to sell to the federal government, but we can give them a list of things to go and do. And so if they'll go get certifications, if they'll get their software FIPS certified, or if it's a if it's a SaaS application and start getting it FedRAMP accredited, then they can be ready to sell. And so I'm sort of assembling that structural framework of what are the technology solution stacks that are going to be available and sellable to the government by the time the government needs those things. And then be working with the government stakeholders to say, okay, here's training that you may need to get. Here's things that you may want to get your people up to speed on so that when the time comes and that's the thing to buy, you don't wind up with purchasing influencers inside of an agency influencing the government to buy something that's old and outdated just because they didn't want to go to another training class. That's, that, that's really interesting because as you say, the sales cycle is much, much longer than that in the private sector. So you have to plan for you know future needs way, way ahead of advance. And then that becomes harder and harder and harder as the speed of innovation and speed of change happens, it's about really our juggling act. I really, really appreciate all the insight you've given us here, Wes. It's been a really interesting conversation. Having been in the sector, Austin, for 30 years, technology for, you know, for the similar, maybe longer, if you had one piece of advice for a CTO or, you know, a fledgling startup co-founder who's starting a tech business, if you had one piece of advice, what, what, would, uh, what would it be? I read this the other day from somebody else, but it's really stuck with me. It says, do what you love or do something else. You certainly don't want to be doing this if it's not what wakes you up every morning and you really have a passion for it. And I think within that, just keep learning. Don't ever stop. You know, you're not in a still body of water in this technology industry. You're in a river and it flows fast. And if you don't stay active and swim, you'll get left behind. You'll get washed down the river with people that stopped learning. And so it's it's a never ending journey Going back to the first thing I said, if you enjoy the journey of learning and of staying sharp and of you know investigating new things, then you can be a really, really good technology leader and you can enjoy it quite a bit. Well, I couldn't agree more. The ability to continue learning and stay interested in your chosen field can only breed success. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a great piece of advice. Thank you so much for that, Wes. Look, I really, really appreciate your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. FreeWire Systems are very lucky to have you. Just in case anyone does want to get in touch with you and ask some questions following up from this, how's the best way for people to get in touch? Certainly they can find me on LinkedIn at Wes Jackson. Just search for WES Jackson <laughs> or email me wes.jackson at 3 That's T-H-R-E-E-W-I-R-E-S-Y-S.com. I know you're a big fan of the Austin soccer team. That's right, Austin MC. <laughs> if you get down to a game, you might see Wes there. And I'm coming out, obviously, the first, second week of November. So uh, potentially we can catch a game if there's one on. So I look forward Absolutely. to it. No problem. So Wes, thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thank you. Have a good one.